Amen. You may be seated. It is great, as always, to be in the house of the Lord with you. And I'll tell you what, it's great to worship, isn't it? I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you, and you can find uh, the 12th chapter of John on page 845. And what we do every week is really the same. We open up God's word, we, we want to see what God has to say, and we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts so that we can walk out of here changed from the inside out. I love the historical account of the birth of Christ, Christmas. In fact, if you spent much time in church, you've probably heard Luke chapter 2, which is the account of the birth of Christ. Now, maybe you've watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special and you've heard it also. But the fact is, Luke's account tells us what happened at the moment of the birth of Christ. And what's amazing is that when you read this account, you realize that all of history has come to this point. That for thousands of years, the, the, the Jewish nation has been waiting for the promised Messiah to come. And then as Galatians 4, 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem man back to himself. When you read Luke's account, you see how God orchestrates all the events. There was a decree that everyone should go to the place of their birth to be counted so Joseph and Mary go from Nazareth in the north down to Bethlehem, the city of David, as was prophesied. And there she has a child. And at the same time, Luke reminds us that out in the fields, the shepherds are doing what shepherds do. They're taking care of the sheep. And then all of a sudden, this, this light shines from above as this angel announces the birth of Christ. In fact, let me just put up, this isn't Christmas, but it's important to understand this. And this was the, the, this was the announcement. And the angels said to them, these are the, the shepherds that at this point are on their face. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. Someone who would save the people from their sins. Who is Christ Jesus the Lord. That would have been an awesome moment, but it wouldn't even compare to what happened next as this just angelic host comes together as all heaven breaks loose. And listen to what it says in the next part, Luke chapter 2, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The only true peace, the peace that comes from knowing Jesus. They're singing over and over and over again, glory to God, glory to God. And so with this one birth, redemptive history was put into motion. Now, fast forward 30 years, and now all of a sudden you have the teaching and preaching and healing ministry of Jesus. We've been reading about that in chapters 1 through chapter 11, and really the second, first part of 12. 
And then all of a sudden we get to the end of chapter 12 and we're now in the last week of the, of the, of the life of, of, and ministry of Jesus on the earth. John 12 brings us to the end of that ministry just days before his arrest. And Jesus reminds the disciples of the purpose for which he came. Don't, us, don't let us ever forget the purpose that Jesus, of Jesus is coming. In fact, let me put it on the screen. This is the big idea of the message. Jesus came to glorify God by seeking and saving the lost. Pretty simple message. If you've been in church, you know this message. Jesus came to glorify God by seeking and saving the lost. For this purpose, he came. He was born to die. He was born to die on the cross and to be raised on the third day. So whoever would put their faith in him would have eternal life. It was for this purpose that he came. Above anything else. His primary purpose was to save those that were destined to eternity in hell versus eternity in heaven. Now, what we see starting in verse 27 are really the last words of Jesus' public ministry. Next week, chapter 13, we're in the upper room. We start the upper room discourse, and it's Jesus and his 12 disciples. But these are his final words. So what do we learn from these last public words, first of all, we learn this. Jesus came to glorify God by saving sinners. Jesus came to glorify God by saving sinners. Now, somewhere between Palm Sunday and his arrest and crucifixion, we get these words. Now, notice what we see in verse 27. Jesus is speaking. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. You can't help but feel the weight of this moment. He's troubled. Some translations say greatly troubled. That word means to be stirred. It's a strong, strong term speaking of being agitated or acute emotional distress. My office at home is really close to the laundry room. And I guess there's an agitation cycle with the washing machine. Really agitating. I mean, Jesus is agitated here. There's something that's going on. Why would his soul be troubled? He knew that shortly he would be taking on the sins of the world. Your sins, my sins. He would be going to the cross and taking the wrath that we deserved for our sins, past, present, and future. He was troubled. He was greatly troubled. And, and, and he, he knew that he would be the grain of wheat that would fall into the, worth, the earth and died, as, as he talked about in verse 24. He knew that he would become sin who knew no sin, that we might receive the righteousness of God as 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 tells us. And he doesn't ask what he should do. He says, what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour? Question mark. Notice when he says it, there's a question mark. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? We know in, in, in Luke's account, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so in this moment, he's saying, what shall I say? And he says, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. When you consider why Jesus came to this earth, it was for this purpose. It was for what is ready to take place. And what is that purpose? To glorify God. To bring praise to his name through his obedience in the cross. Look at verse 28. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus would take on the sins of the world, your sins, my sins. Jesus came for this one purpose. In fact, in, in, in Matthew's account of the birth of Christ, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it's, uh, the, the angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son, speaking of his betrothed, Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins, from the penalty of their sins. For this purpose I have come, to glorify your name. Through his obedience, he would glorify the Father. Jesus lived to glorify the Father. That was his purpose. He was born to suffer. He was born to die. He was born to be raised. He was born to glorify God. And he was doing God's will. Now, how many of you ever said, I just want to do God's will? Because we think sometimes if I do God's will, everything's going to go great. But is that what really happens? Could it be that in doing God's will, it could be a tougher path, a more difficult path? See, God, doing God's will may mean suffering. It may mean giving up our plans. It may mean giving up our lifestyle or our will. I'll never forget when Pam and I surrendered into full-time ministry. That was doing God's will. But that certainly didn't make our life all of a sudden easier. In fact, when the church that I surrendered into ministry to, when, I, when they told me what I was going to get paid, I said, now, is that a month? And they said, no, that's a year. And, and that was a big difference for us. When we moved to Phoenix, we were following God's will. That, did that mean that things were going to be easy, that they were going to be comfortable? No. In fact, it was anything but. It created all kinds of challenges. But, but Jesus says, for this purpose I have come, to glorify your name. He knew. He knew what was ahead of him. In fact, listen to what 1 Peter 3.18 says. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. He was doing God's will the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He knew doing God's will meant suffering. And he knew doing God's will meant death. Yet that is what glorified God. Because even as Chris was talking about, it wasn't about just here on earth, but it was an eternal perspective. 
We understand that this world is not our home. We are just sojourners passing through. So Jesus facing the cross, he had one concern. Glorify God. And I was just thinking, Lord, let my life be about glorifying you. Not glorifying me. Look at verse 28 again. It says, the Father, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, that must have been awesome. In fact, notice, notice what it says in verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it that said it had thundered, others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come from your sake, for your sake, not mine. Now, there are three different times. This is the third time that we hear an audible voice of God from heaven. What was the first one? Anybody know? Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I well please. The second time was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now all of a sudden, this. The, the father responds to Jesus in an audible voice. But some didn't understand it. I can just imagine Pam and I are standing there when this is going on. It's like, hey, honey, did you hear that? Yeah, what was it? I don't know. It sounded like some words. Yeah, maybe it was thunder, but the sky is clear. Like, what is this? Some understood it. Some didn't. But Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. It was for the disciples' benefit. It was to strengthen their faith. And I got to ask you, I think it's so important. There's times where we need our faith to be strengthened. What strengthens your faith? See, here it was the word of God. Has anything changed? No. It is through God's word that our faith is strengthened. We have a better understanding of God and his plans. It, it, is, it is through reading his word that our faith is strengthened. But it may also be through prayer. Sometimes it's through testimonies. I'm telling you, next week, listening to some of the testimonies of those getting baptized, that's going to strengthen some of your faith when you see how God has moved. For some, it can just be brothers in Christ. So God will be glorified through Jesus' coming death, resurrection, and ascension. He will be glorified again, once again, when Jesus would come again. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So all of a sudden, we hear this thundering from heaven. And then all of a sudden, Jesus explains that judgment to the world is coming. Why would he say that? He says that because he knows there are people listening that have not turned from their sins and turned to Jesus. They're facing eternity in hell versus eternity in heaven. And he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So in the midst of this bad news, there's this good news. And the fact is, there would be those that would re re reject Jesus and they would face judgment. Notice what he says here. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who is the ruler of this world? It's Satan. In fact, he's got all kinds of names. 
you either follow Jesus or you follow the ruler of this world. You either follow Jesus or you follow Satan. And I know that's a, that's a pretty stark statement, but let me let Scripture explain it. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I'll put it on the screen. In their case, the God of this world, little g, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Those not in Christ, they've been blinded. In fact, listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 says, verse 1 and 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And, 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 and Paul has just gotten done speaking about our identity in Christ and who we were before Christ. And he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following whom? The prince of the power of the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? He's Satan. He's the, he's the ruler of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Before we were in Christ, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is our condition before Christ. Following the prince of the power of the air. Following the ruler of this world. I didn't put it up there, but Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, But God. But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us. He saved us. It's all a work of God. Listen, you may not be conscious... Consciously following the prince of the power of the air. But if you don't embrace Jesus, that is who you are following with a horrific destination. Hell. In fact, Jesus talks more about hell in the Bible than he does about heaven. That is what makes verse 32 so glorious. And then he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What's he speaking of? He's speaking of his resurrection, or excuse me, of, 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 of being raised up on the cross. When I am lifted up, it's, it's literally being, being raised in height. When I am lifted up on the cross, the cross is where he takes God's wrath so we don't have to. And for those in Christ, Satan can no longer accuse us because Christ has forgiven our sins past, present, and future. Now, what is meant by, I will draw all people to myself? Does that mean that's universally, everybody gets to be saved? No. What it means is all people without distinction, without exclusion, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every gender, every socioeconomic uh, background. Now, now, when he says, and I, when I am lifted up, that confused the people that are listening. Now, remember, this is, this is during the time of Passover. As Josephus told us that 30 years later, Jerusalem swelled to 2.7 million people. We know the temple courts were probably packed with people, and they're listening to Jesus. There's Jews. There's some Gentiles there. And when he says, when I am lifted up, it confused some of the Jews that had studied the scriptures because they, real, they, they thought that the son of David would live forever. 
Why would you say when, when he is lifted up? In fact, look at verse 33. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Well, they were probably thinking back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, speaking of everlasting father. Or Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 25, which says, David, my servant, shall be the prince forever. How can you say he must be lifted up? See, this scenario did not fit their view or their understanding of what a Messiah should be. Often, we want Jesus to fit our scenario. We want him to fit in our box or in our timing or in our expectations. We want him to accomplish what we want to have accomplished. And anything short of that, we think he's a failed Messiah. But is he? See, we have this human-centric view of what God should be, which is a very dangerous place to be. I lived that way for 40 years. Thank God for Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God. Because if it wasn't for that but God, I'd be in a mess of hurt. How can you say he must be lifted up? Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Jesus doesn't even engage in this. He's saying, he's just, he wants them to know. Listen, the light is going to be with you just a little bit longer. Who's the light? Jesus. He's speaking of himself. He says, the light among you is, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Jesus in this moment is saying, believe. Stop walking in darkness. You can walk in the light. In fact, you can be sons of the light. In fact, Scripture speaks so much about the light. In fact, in, I'll put up on the screen, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He's speaking to his disciples. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's saying, listen, the light is among you for a little longer. He knows that he's getting ready to go to the cross. Quit arguing about other things. Surrender your life to me. Become a child of the light. Let me ask you. Jesus came to save sinners. Have you been saved? Have you turned from your sins and turned to Jesus and believed that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross in your place and he was raised on the third day? Have you been saved? Are you going to spend eternity in heaven? Do you know that you know that you know? There's only one way to know. 
And that's to repent of your sins. That's to turn. You're going this way, and all of a sudden, you're, you're running towards sin and self, following the prince of the power of the air, and you turn, and you now turn to Jesus. That's repentance, and embrace what he did on the cross. Listen, Jesus came to glorify God by saving sinners. That's the first truth that we learn. Second two will go a little faster. Here's the second truth. Some will reject salvation by rejecting Jesus. Some are just going to reject salvation. Now, in verse 36, we see the word believe. Eight times in verses between verses 36 through 44, we see the word believe. So let me ask you, what is the focus of these next passages? It's not a trick question. It's to believe. In fact, it's the whole focus of the whole book of John. John. John says in John 20, verse 31, he says, These things I've written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. But many won't believe. They reject salvation by rejecting Jesus. And we see in the second part of verse 36, it says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and, and hid himself from them. Now, we don't know where he went. We don't know how, for how long he went. We just know he couldn't have been gone for very long because he shows up shortly. But then John makes this very sad statement, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Such a sad statement. God had done all these incredible miracles and teachings and, and healings, yet many did not believe. It's heartbreaking. Verses 37 through 43 is about, is about Israel's unbelief and God's judgment on them. In fact, listen to what Warren Wiersbe said, the great Bible commentator. He says, in spite of all the clear evidence that was presented to them, the nation, notice, would not believe. In fact, if you have a New International Version, NIV Version, it says they would not believe. The arm of the Lord had been revealed to them in great power, yet... They closed their eyes to the truth. They had heard the message. They had heard the reports and seen the miracles. And yet, they would not believe. Is this a shock that someone would reject Jesus? Well, if you've read John, you've read John 1, verse 11. Notice what this says. It says in John 1.11, it says, he came to his own, Jesus was Jewish, he came to the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. That's what we're seeing right here. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. They didn't believe. So the question was, the question is, why did some people reject Jesus? Verse 38, so that... Something's getting ready to come. When he says, so that, there's, there's this conjunction that ties many not believing to why they didn't believe. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 53 and then Isaiah 6, 
He says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Both of these verses, these, these quotes from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6, what they do is they stress what John MacArthur says is God's sovereign plan in his judicial hardening of Israel. In fact, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 this week, and you will see that judicial hardening. God, he has mercy upon who he has mercy. How can the potter say to the clay? I mean, how can the clay say to the potter? I, I, I don't want to be a cup. I, I want to be a pitcher. Here's the irony of it all. Those who rejected God through Jesus Christ, they were used by God to put Jesus on the cross. Those that rejected, God used them to put Jesus on the cross. Yet they didn't understand the, the cataclysmic implications that that would have for them. And they also didn't understand the salvific implications for those that did believe in him. See, for those that reject Jesus, putting him on the cross, that's where Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan. But for those that turn from their sin and turn to Jesus, they have eternal life. The fact is, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, which is quoted in verse 40, it says, God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now, we know also that, because, that God is sovereign in salvation, but we also know that God holds us responsible for embracing the truth of the gospel. He holds us responsible. So Jesus came to glorify God by saving sinners. But some will reject salvation by rejecting Jesus. Look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, John just quotes Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. And then he says, Isaiah said these things. Why? Because he saw his glory. Who's his glory? Jesus' glory. Remember Isaiah 6, Uzziah had been the king for, for 52 years. Now Isaiah dies. And Isaiah says, I, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And, and, and all of a sudden he gets a glimpse of the glory of God. He, he's saying here, John is telling us that Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ. It's called a Christophany. He saw Jesus 700 years prior. Why? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He sees a pre-incarnate Christ. And then he says, nevertheless, verse 42, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, I, I read that to Pam last night. And I said, do you think there's any application here? She said, oh, maybe just a little bit. Why didn't they confess Jesus? Three words. Fear of man. Fear of man. 
They believed and they did not confess. In fact, verse 37 so says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still not, did not believe. Now it says in verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities, many of the religious leaders even believed in him. But they didn't confess Christ. Why? Because they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. Now here's the question. Were those who believed but didn't confess, were they saved? I don't know. But scripture tells us, in fact, look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, I think it's Matthew. Yeah, Matthew 10. So every, Jesus says, for everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Some pretty strong words. That's why it's so important for us as Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be what? Saved. Saved. Now, James 2, 19 says, even the demons believe, but they're not saved. Listen, these men had a real fear of being put out of the synagogue. That's what it says. It says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, but for fear of the religious leaders, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. I understand that. 22 years ago, when I received Christ, when Pam and I received Christ, the first thing I'm thinking is, how do I tell my parents who are Jewish? How do I tell my my, my cousin, who at the time was the, the, the editor, the, uh, the publisher of the Jerusalem Post, a close friend of Bibi Netanyahu, how, how do I tell my family? And Pam's telling everybody. It's like, it's like, who cares? I mean, I'm just telling everybody. And I'm like, there, there's just certain fears. And I had struggle. I had to work through that. But the fact is, we have to be careful that we don't love the glory that comes from man more than we love the glory of God. In fact, we should be more concerned about what God thinks than what man thinks. In fact, what a prayer to pray every morning when you wake up. God, give me a desire to be more concerned about what you think than what any man I come in contact with this week thinks. The root of unbelief is they love the glory of man more than they love the glory of God. They love the glory of self more than they love the glory of God. They love the praise of man more than they love the praise of God. Were they saved? We don't know, but we do know that at least a couple of them Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea openly confessed Christ in John chapter 19. So Jesus came for a purpose, to glorify God by saving sinners. But some will reject salvation by rejecting Jesus. And my prayer is that's none of you. Here's the third truth we learn. Some will receive salvation by embracing Jesus. Some will receive Jesus by embracing, excuse me, some will receive salvation by embracing Jesus. Now we know that Jesus departed and hid himself. And then he comes back. 
And he probably appears in the temple courts. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. I mean, that word cry out, it almost could be like a screech. Clearly, it was an outside voice, not an inside voice. He cries out with a loud cry. These are Jesus' final public words, and you can just sense the, the intensity in his voice. Why? Because he wants people to be saved. He wants people to embrace him. He's getting ready to go to the cross. His final words that we're going to see here, I, there, there are three things. One is a call to believe. Secondly, there's a challenge to those who reject him. And third, there's a promise to those who believe. Let me start with the promise. The promise is for those who believe, they will no longer walk in darkness, but will walk in the light. Look at verse 45. He says, and whoever sees me, with eyes to see and ears to hear, sees him who sent me. Who's that? The Father. He says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. It's a reminder of, I believe it's John 8, 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The promise is if you embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will no longer walk in darkness. You've gone from darkness to light. You have the light of life. That's the promise. Here's the challenge. The challenge for those who reject Jesus. In fact, especially those of you who are hearing the word of God now or have been hearing the word of God for a long time. You will be judged by God's word. Look what it says in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I love that. Jesus came to save sinners. That's what we've been talking about. I don't judge you. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken, that will judge them. It'll judge them on the last day. When, 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 when those, that are not, those names are not written in the book of life will be cast into outer darkness, will be cast into the lake of fire. Those that are in Christ will enter into his glory. It is by God's word that you will be judged. He says, for I have not spoken of my own authority, verse 49, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father told me. Listen, you have what you need for eternal life, God's word. In fact, in John chapter 6, the bread of life discourse where some of the disciples were saying, this is, these are hard sayings and a whole bunch of people left. And Jesus looked to his disciples and he says, are you going to go too? And Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. You can't know Jesus apart from his word. 
Because it is through his word that you learn who he is and you learn how you can have salvation. In fact, you can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't love his word. That's an oxymoron. He is the word. He is the logos. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And for those who reject Jesus and his word, you face eternal judgment. All right, finally. There's a call to believe. Look again at verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. It was the father that sent the son. He sent him to the cross. Why? It was for that purpose by which he came. In fact, you can hear the anguish in his voice. You want the father? Believe in me. You want eternal life? Believe in me. You want compassion? Believe in me. You want forgiveness? Believe in me. You want hope? Believe in me. You want to live a victorious life? Believe in me. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die in your place so you can have eternal life. See, the cross will satisfy the the Father's requirement for justice. You just need to turn from your sin and turn to me. Don't reject me. Embrace me. For this purpose, I have come for this hour, this very moment. I'm going to the cross. Believe in me. As a worship team comes up, it's no wonder in in Luke chapter 2, all heaven broke loose singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. In fact, in Revelation chapter 5, when the elders of the church in heaven come around and they start crying out, they start singing, notice what they say in in Revelation chapter 5. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and what? And worshiped. And then this. To him, or excuse me, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing And I had every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, glory to the Father, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing. We kind of did that backwards. But the fact is, it is for those that embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. What you've done is you're part of the reason Jesus came. See, if we go back to those main points, Jesus came to glorify God by saving sinners. And the fact is, if you're not in Christ, you need to be saved. But some will reject salvation by rejecting Jesus. And again, I pray that's not anybody here. And some will receive salvation by embracing Jesus. Father, thank you. For the sacrifice of sending your only son into this world to die a a vicarious death, a sacrificial death on the cross in our place. Father, we we read these words, and I pray they aren't words, but I pray that, that we see that this is your heart for us. 
And there may be some here that had a tough week, a tough month, a tough year, and they're just looking for answers. Lord, sometimes we just want you to change our situation, but Lord, we know you want to change us in the midst of our situation. You can only do that by changing our hearts, taking our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. That only happens when we embrace the only truth in this world that matters, that Jesus came to save. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus who glorified you through his work on the cross. Father, move among us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.